in most cases, you're selling property and you start a regular 1031 exchange, but the replacement property that you want to acquire, you use some of your cash to put down on the property or acquire it. We again have to acquire and hold legal title or park title for it, so we hold title. Uh, and that gives the investor the rest of their 180-day window to make capital improvements to the property. So anything that is paid for and completed during that 180-day window will qualify, and anything not completed won't. You're listening to The Azria Show. If you're looking for quality real estate investing information that you can trust, you've found it. Stay tuned and join the tens of thousands of members that have already benefited from Azria, your home for education, market information, support, and networking opportunities that will advance your real estate investing career. Welcome to another episode of the Azria Show. I am Marcus Maloney, and we have our executive director and co-host, Mike Delpreet. Today. Hi, Mike. How are you? And we're going to be... We don't have a perfect intro. Never. Never have a perfect intro, right? <laughs> All right everything, is, everything is organic, never scripted. So today, I want you guys to really pay attention. We have Bill Exeter on today, and we're going to be talking about 1031 exchanges. So I want you to make sure you guys are ready. Grab your pencils, papers, tablets, so you can take notes. That way you'll know how to transition your money when doing 1030 exchanges, 1031 exchanges, and know the do's and the don'ts. So with that being said, Bill, thank you. We welcome you to the show. How are you today, sir? I am good. Thank you so much for having us on the show. Great, great, great. So can you give us just a brief introduction of who you are and how you got into uh, starting with 1031 exchanges and retirement accounts? Sure. The quick summary is by accident. Okay. I've been doing uh, uh, financial services now for over 40 years, going way back in the early 80s. We, I was controller of a small commercial bank in Los Angeles, and the uh, chairman decided to start a 1031 exchange company. Their counsel said, don't have the escrow subsidiary run it. And so he threw it at me, and I had kind of that blazed look of what the heck is a 1031 exchange? <laughs> okay. Uh, I got lucky UCLA had an extension course. So it was like two and a half days right after that. I took that and uh, full cycle. Now it's been uh, coming up on uh, over 40 years for financial services and coming up on 39 years for 1031 exchanges. So really uh, trust services, 1031 exchange services, also title holding just land trust, self-directed IRAs, uh, you know, those type of a unique trust products that are directly related to real estate's been the last 40 some years. Wow. So it's safe to say that you're not a novice, correct? True. <laughs> I have a loss of hair to prove it. <laughs> Bill, you know, just for, for all, all of us listening out there, can you just maybe in basic one-on-one terms, what's the 1031 exchange and how does it work? Sure. And, and probably the best way is to use kind of an example, you know, so a lot of folks start off with one asset, one property, they buy a single family for many reasons, and it ends up where it's designed to be a rental property. Uh, they hold it for, let's say, five years or something, and then they decide, you know what, I really like this, and I'm ready for a duplex or fourplex or, you know, whatever they want to get into. 
that's when they hopefully meet with their tax advisor and get the bad news that if they sell that property, there's going to be a huge taxable gain in most cases. Okay. Uh, but that's where the 1031 exchange comes in. So they can sell that property. They can defer all their federal and state taxes by reinvesting in other rental investment or business use property. So it's all about selling an asset, deferring the taxes by reinvesting. That keeps all of the money in their pocket instead of writing a check to the federal government and the state government. Uh, it all stays in their pocket. That gives them 100% of their equity or cash available to reinvest so they can buy larger assets or more doors or you know whatever they're trying to do. Ultimately, hopefully increase cash flow in their net worth. Okay. Well, now, is, is there a limit on how many times you can do this a year, Bill? Good question. No, there's no limit. Uh, as long as the intent is to hold for rental investment or business use, there's no limit. Um, you know, if folks are trying to buy something and then flip a rehab and immediately sell, then they're really a dealer. So they can't do it yeah. for those type of activities. But if they're mm -hmm. truly selling, exchanging, buying replacement property and holding it as rental investment or business use, there's no limit. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot, a lot to be said there, you know, so maybe you can break down some of the rules to it uh, from timeframes. So, you know, right, you have to identify properties and can you break down some of the, the basic rules we should understand? Sure. Uh, rule number one, always make sure you have the 1031 exchange set up before the sale closes. That sounds pretty basic, but it's amazing. We get calls literally every week where they say, I, I closed last week or a month ago or what have you. And either I just decided to do a 1031 exchange or I just found out about it. And unfortunately it's too late. Uh, the purchase and sale agreement has to be assigned to the qualified intermediary. That means we step into your shoes and we become the seller. If that has not been put in place and the sale closes, it's taxable and there's no way to okay. go back and fix that. So that's rule number one. Uh, once the sale closes, rule number two kicks in. That is, you have 45 calendar days to identify what you're going to buy as your replacement property. 45 days moves very quickly. So you got to have your plan in place, know what you're going to do. You know, don't wait till you're in 45 days to try to figure that out. Uh, okay. Then after the 45 days, you have an additional 135 days to actually complete your 1031 exchange. And that's a total of 180. Uh, a lot of folks think it's 45 plus 180. It's not. It's 45 plus 135 days for a total of 180. Um, and those are really the timelines. So depending on the market, sometimes those timelines can be really tough to meet. So you got to be focused. Probably some of the more important aspects of the 1031 is qualified use. So all the properties they sell, all the properties they buy through the same 1031 exchange have to be qualified use, which means some type of rental investment or business use. Properties held for sale, like inventory in a real estate business, don't qualify. So builders, developers, contractors typically buy, build, and sell. Those aren't going to qualify. But if they were to buy, build, and hold as rental properties, they would qualify. So it's all about the intent to hold not necessarily the length of time you hold them. Okay. So anything held for sale, rehabbers, flippers, condo conversion specialists, developers typically don't qualify unless they buy, do something to the property and then hold it for investment purposes. So let me ask you this real quick, Bill, because I know we talk about qualified use and like for like for like. We didn't even step into that yet, did we? Okay. Well, I don't want to jump the gun. So go ahead. I'll let you. 
I'll let you make that statement. Sure. That was actually the next point. Like kind, there's a lot of confusion out there. I should go back to qualified use too. Both of those, qualified use and like kind, there's so much confusion out there. Um, and we get called when they say, I've talked to three or four people and I got three or four different answers and I'm really confused. So to break it down, going back to qualified use, you know, people are, people will call and tell us, you know, I was told I don't qualify because I didn't hold the property for at least one year uh, or things like that, or one year and a half or two years or something. And they go, well, what is it? Is it one year? Is it two years? I'm confused. And it's important to note the tax code, the regulations and rulings do not have a holding period required. There is no holding period. And most people tell you there is, and it's at least a year or, or 18 months or whatever they're going to say. But the, what it really says is the intent. It boils down to if you get audited, can you prove your intent was to hold for rental investment or business use? So the longer you hold title to the property and actually rent it or hold it for business use or something like that, the easier it is to prove intent. So that's why people get hung up on the length of time, but it's really the intent. Now, we had one of our clients sell to an exchange by a condo, uh, did not read the CCNRs until after close, and quickly found out it had to be owner-occupied. Um, he was audited by the California Franchise Tax Board, and even though he only held it for about a month and a half, uh, they allowed his 1031 exchange to qualify because he could prove his intent was to hold for business use or rental but it was a reason why he couldn't rent it out. It was out of his control, so they allowed that. Um, okay. And then going into the like-kind property, same thing. People get lots of confusion. There's still curriculum out there that says if you sell a single family, you got to buy a single family. If, you know, sell apartments, you got to buy apartments. That is not true. Um, like-kind literally means you're selling real estate. You have to buy real estate. And anything that is considered real property will qualify. So... Even assets like air rights, water rights, mineral rights, oil and gas interests, fractional ownership interests like Delaware statutory trusts, all of those qualify. Okay, great. That, and that's one of the reasons why I was kind of bringing that up is because you hear a lot of misinformation. Like you said, hey, you know what? I sold a commercial or I sold a single family and now I want to go into commercial. And I can't, I can't 1031 my single family rental to go into commercial. So that's the reason why I brought that up because there is a lot of misinformation out there regarding that. Yeah, no, I, I hear that all the time, like for like it at some way. So you, so you could do four greenhouses to one red hotel. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I always wondered that cause you always hear, uh, you know, single family to single family. So I always wondered, you know, so thanks for clearing that up. Yeah, and you bring up a good point, which is it doesn't have to be one for one. So you could sell multiple properties, you could buy multiple properties. Uh, as you know, the more properties involved, the more complicated the transaction gets. I think, quote unquote, the best slash worst one we've ever done was okay. placement properties. So that came with a lot of excedrin. Wow. But it can be done. It's just that there's a lot of moving parts and it's really tough to get them all put together. So what did you do over the last two years? Right. The with, you know, slow supply of houses, you got the short time frame of 45 days. I have a question I want to ask if you, if you don't answer it. Like, so how did you get how did your customers navigate that? Because there still is low supply in a lot of these bigger cities. Yeah, you still have an inventory issue going on as well. The you know, the last two years, and I think it's safe to say was probably the craziest two years in my 40 plus year career. You had a lot of moving parts where you 
you know, everyone was going into a really good market and then all of a sudden COVID hit. And, you know, there's a lockdown and everybody thought, oh my gosh, this is another 2008. And then two and a half months later, the volume just exploded. Yep. Uh, we had a lot of cash sitting out there, a lot of free money from different COVID uh, programs, um, but you had tight, tight inventory. So it was really tough, but the volume exploded. Our, our, our uh, volume in a lot of cases quadrupled just with no warning, no notice. So it was a challenge because our staffing, we couldn't staff up. Nobody wanted a job. Yeah. Pretty crazy. Wow. But th that was the toughest part. 45 days moves very quickly. So what we'd recommend is clients to say, look, go out and try to find your new property first. See if there's a way to tie it up. Maybe you lease it with an option to buy. Maybe you go into a under contract, go with a long-term close, options to extend. The problem is, as you know, and sellers weren't going to be cooperative. It was a seller's market. Right. On to the next yeah. offer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so you get that yes. kind of thing. Um, if you're in the, in this case, you're the seller, so you're selling property, you might be able to say, look, buyer, I'm willing to sell to you and I'll give you a special price, but you're going to have to wait and cooperate with me. So we had a lot of people, you know, just forcing the buyers to cooperate. Uh, we still got a lot of deals done. It's, uh, the failure rate did go up, which we expected, but it didn't go up as much as I would expect it to go up. So still a lot of deals got done. Okay. And, and let's kind of, kind of talk on that failure rate. So what are some of the, what are some of the things that cause that failure rate to fluctuate or just the property not being able to qualify or the transaction not being able to qualify? Yeah, it, uh, you know, it depends on the market and, and what's happening, you know, with that trend. Uh, today, probably the biggest reason that they fail is they've got the sale property ready to go. Um, they sell, hopefully the buyer qualifies and gets the financing done so they close. But the first step is a lot of the buyers are finding that they did qualify. Now they don't qualify. So they'll fall out of escrow. Uh, they can't close. Now in that case, it's not a big deal because if you haven't closed on your sale, it doesn't start your deadlines yet. Right. Or in a lot of cases, you find the folks sell, they do close, they go to buy and they don't qualify for financing. So now they've sold, they've triggered their gain. But if you can't acquire property, uh, then you've got a challenge there. So you've got those type of scenarios. Um, a lot of folks were looking for ways to acquire property where the financing was easier. So uh, one example would be the Delaware Statutory Trust. You know, with those, you don't qualify for the financing. If you buy a 1% interest, you effectively assume 1% of the debt. Uh, you're not responsible for it. It's non-recourse. It doesn't go on your credit profile, but you qualify for tax purposes. So the Delaware Statutory Trust certainly bailed out a lot of folks that were in a jam. Um, but, but that's probably one of the biggest issues. In a normal market, one of the things we see is people, uh, they just don't plan ahead. They get into their 45-day window, and then they start trying to figure out what they're going to buy. And boy, that puts you in a really tough spot. Yeah, you know what? And, and, and it's funny because uncharacteristically, a lot of people do that. They'll sell and then want to scramble and try and find that replacement property. So they're uh, true. I, so I'm going to try to ask this properly. <laughs> so I just, you know, I've never done a 1031 personally, but with this 45 day type crunch and, you know, the low inventory, is there like a workaround in a way, right? Like, is there ways to do this? You know, and I'm, I'm going to chop this up. I, I heard someone say that they like bought properties, cash, put them in a trust and then like bought them from the trust, something along those lines. Is that even like ring a bell? Yeah, it's my favorite answer. It depends. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. 
If they buy property and it's under their control, it probably would not work. I know people try it. And typically, if they get audited, it'll be collapsed in a step transaction because technically they've already bought the property. Right. Uh, so it would fail. But if you had a friend or business partner or buddy that's not related to you who would go out and buy the property and hold it for you until you're ready to buy it from them, as long as they had all the benefits and burdens of ownership, all the risks of ownership, if the property value goes up, they make a profit. If it goes down, they take a loss. Yeah, in theory, you could do something like that. Um, I, I don't know a whole lot of friends that would do that. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't recommend. Yeah. I'm not yeah. recommending giving your friends your houses or your investment properties. <laughs> that's a, that's yeah. asking a lot. But along the same lines, you could do a reverse 1031 exchange. So okay. our 1031 exchange volume was probably up 400 percent. Where you could actually go out, find the property you want, go under contract. Uh, you can actually close on the acquisition of the new property first. And okay. then you've got 180 days to sell your current property. Now, that sounds easy. Uh, okay. It's certainly a great tool for these difficult markets, but the IRS doesn't allow you to own both your relinquished and your replacement property at the same time. So they've come up with this parking arrangement where we as the qualified intermediary have to acquire and hold or what they call park legal title to the property. So that complicates the exchange. Uh, traditional lenders won't touch it. But if you can find a way to do it, especially if you're in a position to pay all cash, you can absolutely buy first, we take title, and then you sell. And it eliminates a lot of the risk in a, a regular 1031 exchange. Got it. Okay. I didn't know that. I didn't know there's a reverse. Yeah, me either. So. Yeah, some of your, your, a lot of your listeners are probably more creative. So you know, mm -hmm. if you can go out and find the property you want, go under contract uh, with a long extent, long closing, options to extend, lease with an option to buy. You know, things like that, that's a lot simpler. It's not as complicated as the reverse. If you can somehow tie up the property, but not close on it, then you can control when they close and maybe even con close concurrently. So things like that can certainly work. The reverse is kind of like a fail safe. If you have to, if you're backed in the corner, you just have to close. Yeah. And that's when the reverse comes in. That's only about 3% of our volume. So it shows you it's, it's a lot more complicated. And do you do this with your clients? Is this something you can do is have a consultation and kind of work out their unique scenario? Absolutely. Yeah, we can walk them through all the requirements, see if it, if it makes sense. Uh, in a lot of cases, if they need to finance the property, uh, that complicates it even more and it may not even work out. So we'd have to look at, crunch the numbers and see if it, there's a way to make it fit. Love it. Okay. Oh, interesting. Interesting. It, is this like a virtual, can you do it virtually all throughout the United States or are you just located in your state? We, yeah, we do all types of exchanges. We cover all 50 states. So we even do foreign property transactions. So okay. most of it is all virtual, you know, e-signing type uh, relationships, things like that. Cool. What about fees? Perfect. Pardon me? Oh, fees. Like what's it cost to do this? Oh, good question. So it depends on the type of transaction. Uh, for regular transactions, regular 1031 exchanges, or a lot of people call them forward 1031 exchange. You're selling first, buying second. Uh, ours is a flat fee of $1,099. Uh, that covers one sale, one purchase. If there's more properties involved, each additional is $300 to process. When you get into reverses or improvement exchanges or foreign property transactions, and the fees go up quite a bit, um, reverses are probably about 78 to 9,800 ish, depending on what's involved. Improvement exchanges are probably about 10 to 12. And 
you know, if they get even more complicated, it would be more than that. So it really depends, but we'll always sit down, talk to the client, find out what's involved, uh, then give a written fee quote so they know what they're looking at. Okay. Uh, good question. I, I wanted to present to you because you, you kind of brought it up was the improvement exchanges. Cause I heard about that, but just never knew the basis of it. So can you explain that? Sure. Uh, they're not for the faint of hearts. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> um, so you're, in most cases, you're selling property and you start a regular 1031 exchange, but the replacement property that you want to acquire, you use some of your cash to put down on the property or acquire it. We again have to acquire and hold legal title or park title to it. So we hold title. Uh, and that gives the investor the rest of their 180-day window to make capital improvements to the property. So okay. anything that is paid for and completed during that 180-day window will qualify, and anything not completed won't. For example, if, if we cut a check to the lumberyard, the lumberyard dumps the lumber on the property, it still doesn't count because it hasn't been made part of the real estate. It's just sitting there. So it's really personal property, not real property. But if they you know, constructed the frame attached to the foundation, put it up. And then in that case, it's part of the real estate. It would qualify. So the 45 day window gets complicated because you have to identify what you're going to buy it, which includes the improvements you're going to put up. And then you've got that 180 day window to get them done. And if you don't get all of them done, that is where the risk is. You know, could they possibly get not enough done? So under audit, they could say you didn't acquire substantially the same as what you identified and then disqualify the whole exchange. So timing is okay. part there. So it's, it's basically during that improvement period, you need to make sure you get as much of those improvements done as possible to make sure it doesn't trigger audit event. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. Especially yeah, yeah. like California, like we are getting up more so permitting can be a huge problem with that. Gotcha. Okay. I can see how that, that could jeopardize it. Cause if your, you know, city or county takes three months to approve a permit and then you only have, you know, two months to try and do the, the rehab or whatever, you could be in deep trouble. It's, it's so, tough. Very small percentage of what we do because there's just, they're very difficult. So in that event, let's just say, let's use the, the lumber example. So it's not affixed to the property. So it's personal property, right? Um, so what is the recourse? I know they say that they can kick out the, the 1031 exchange. So then that way you will have to pay capital gains on that initial uh, first sale, correct? And then um, is there like a threshold? Is there, hey, it gotta be 30% complete, 50% complete, 80% complete? That's a really good question. Um... And it's my favorite answer, get it depends. Okay. <laughs> yeah. In most cases, the investor will identify the property they're going to buy plus all the improvements they're going to make. And then stuff happens. Mm -hmm. So it could be um, like if you go through COVID, you had uh, contractors wouldn't work. Uh, then when the market took off, you couldn't find a contractor. Right. Uh, you have supply chain challenges. You have weather related issues, things like that. So if you identify all of the improvements and let's say you finish virtually none of them or maybe 25%, you've probably got a problem. And under audit, they'd probably disqualify the exchange. The question is, would they disqualify the entire exchange or just the improvements? Um, I think what they boil down to is they didn't acquire substantially the same as what they identified. 
they'd probably disqualify the entire exchange. Uh, but there's, there's not a whole lot of guidance out there on issues like that. So the question is, what do you identify? How much do you identify? That's where it gets really sticky. Okay. Okay. And then does the um, rules or laws change from state to state, or is it just federal blanket across the country? Uh, it's certainly a federal code. Uh, most states mm -hmm. will uh, uh, comply with the federal requirements. Some states have some little you know, secrecies, things like that. Uh, the one to make note of is Pennsylvania did not allow 1031 exchanges up until this year. So they passed new wow. legislation. So January 1st, 2023, Pennsylvania now allows state tax to be deferred through a 1031 exchange transaction. So now all 50 states actually comply with the 1031 code. Some of them have some quirks. Uh, for example, California, they have Always. what we call the, name, the California clawback provision. So if you okay. sell to California and buy in other states, uh, they say it's tax deferred. But if you ever cash out and pay the tax in the future, California wants their fair share. And you have to report the status of that property every year to California. So there's a few differences like that. Uh, some have withholding requirements where you have to apply for a certificate of exemption because you're doing a 1031 exchange. Uh, so, but for the most part, they follow the code. Okay. Okay. California is always different. They always have some other quirk that they have to make things a little bit more difficult, but y'all understand that. <laughs> So, okay. Um, I, I love stories. So y you must have some cool success stories or you know, what was like your coolest 1031 exchange that just stands out that you always remember? Uh, we've got a few. We do have a few of those. <laughs> uh, probably the most challenging was the one I mentioned where they had 86 replacement properties. So that was, uh, yeah. that was a lot of work, a lot of hours and a lot of headaches, but we got it done. Uh, so let me, let me ask you this, Bill. Did sure. they sell? Did they sell commercial and bought eighty six single family units? Yes, they sold one large asset and then bought eighty six singles. Uh, the eighty six singles were actually in Tennessee, so that gives you an idea that the values are a lot less. Uh, but they did yeah. do acquisitions. Um, it was tough, but they they did a lot of homework. They had a lot of planning up front. They were kind of ready, and so when that sale closed, they just started to execute. Uh, so that's. Okay. If they weren't ready, they probably would not have. Yeah, they wouldn't have been able to pull that off, probably. That's Prior to 2017, you used to be able to do 1031 exchanges on personal property, meaning non-real estate. So we've done a lot of exchanges on aircraft, shipping, trucking, animals, you know, livestock, uh, things like that. So the weirdest would be uh, we did an exchange on a meteorite. Uh, long story, but uh, <laughs> that was an interesting one. Uh, who would sell a meteorite and buy other meteorites? But that's right. What question was what's like kind like well i think i guess another meteorite <laughs> yeah i never would have thought about that yeah it was strange we did an air aircraft exchange this is a long time ago but they the council wanted to make sure we were in international airspace when the transaction was closed for uh personal use property tax purposes so uh, we actually all boarded the plane went out closed the deal in international airspace and then came back and, and landed and they wouldn't let me fly the 747 can you believe it Wow. <laughs> they probably wouldn't keep their asset, Bill. <laughs> so about the meteorite, what did you guys do to find like kind? Well, it's, that, you know, it's funny. When the call came in at first, we thought it was a crank phone call. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then we realized, no, these guys are really serious. So he was an investor who had bought a 
I've somehow got this meteorite for almost nothing. So its cost basis was close to zero. Uh, it had been on display in various museums and whatnot. And, and he reported it as an asset held for investment purposes. And out of the blue, we got a $1 million offer to buy it. So he took it. And uh, then his question to us was, what's like kind? It's like, well, for sure, you can sell a meteorite and buy a meteorite, but who would do that? And he said, right. And then he was getting into, well, would other types of minerals or various types of gems? That's fall? what I was thinking. Yep. There's been no ruling on that. So the answer is it's an uncharted territory and nobody knows for sure. Uh, he ended up actually acquiring other, like a, a little portfolio of, of uh, meteorites, which didn't know you could do that, but wow. <laughs> Because I was, I was thinking, okay, just just the way I think, I was like, okay, you sell the meteorite for a million dollars, then you go and buy raw land. I'm thinking it's rock for rock. I don't know, maybe yeah, I'm like off basis, but is <laughs> there, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sold. So if you could figure, if you know, if you have a creative situation in real estate, and and Bill here could do a, a meteorite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Figure that out. You're my first go-to, man. That's for sure. So, Bill, tell us, kind of wrapping up here, what are some of the areas of expertise you believe that your company sets apart itself from other 1031 exchange or trust companies? I think there's a number of uh, positions we take that set us apart. Uh, one is we're more consultative advisory in nature, so we'll spend as much time as we need to on the phone or in person or via email. Uh, helping educate clients. So these are complicated transactions. Uh, you don't need somebody who's just a processor. You need someone who you can get in touch with and talk to and get questions answered and things like that. So we're available to help walk people through that. Usually the best way is you jump on a conference call with the investor and their advisors and then walk through all the issues at once. And everybody's got a little piece of the pie so we can make sure they get exactly the right solution they need. Um, second is we're one of the few qualified intermediaries that has any type of regulatory oversight. Uh, the industry itself has no licensing capabilities or regulatory authority. So most qualified intermediaries can just shut up shop and there's nobody that oversees their operation. We wanted to be regulated, so we chose to go down the regulatory path, but we had to find a way to do it. Um, in my past, I managed a trust company, so we decided, uh, let's start another trust company. So we went through the couple year process of getting reviewed and approved by the division of banking for our own trust company charter. So now we're licensed, regulated, and audited by the Wyoming division of banking. And that way they've got a regulatory body who overlooks everything. And most of the QIs that have failed over time that I've seen uh, could have been prevented had there been regulatory oversight. So that's why we thought it was critical. Cool. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. So um, just to recap, I'm going to go over the four, I'll just call them the four pillars of doing a 1031 exchange is you need to have the 1031 exchange set up prior to close of escrow on your sale property. You have 45 days replacement period, plus another 135 days to complete the 1031 exchange. You have to have the qualified use and then like-kind properties. So those four pillars. Did I miss anything else, Bill? Nope. Those are the four key points. Yep. Excellent. Like-kind like meteorites. And <laughs> <laughs> I love that, man. Thank you for sharing. Rock for rock. So, Bill, how can we get in touch with you? How can we find you if we want to do some more research, 
or um, hire out some services or get that, that consultation? Sure. They can reach out directly to me if they want. They can call. Uh, I'm out of the San Diego headquarters office. So our number there is area code 619-239-3091. Again, that's 619-239-3091. They can email me directly at wexeter at exeterco.com. Or they can go to our website. Our website's got a lot of articles, a lot of material out there on 1031 exchanges and other other things like self-directed IRAs and what have you. So that's exeterco.com. So it's E-X-E-T-E-R-C-O.com. Cool. Excellent. Do do you come to Arizona at all? I do. Yep, absolutely. In fact, we, uh, I think we're going to have one of our folks moving to Arizona shortly. So we're going to probably have a little office in Arizona. Oh, keep in touch. You know, come by uh, if you're in town. Always come to a RIA meeting. Come check us out. Oh, that'd be great. Yep. We'll love to. Okay. All right, guys. You know what to do. Thank you for being loyal listeners. Thank you so much, Bill Exeter and Exeter 1031 Exchange for being our guests on today. Guys, you understand how critical it is to make smart moves with your money and to save on taxes. So reach out to Bill. Do the consultation if you need to do a 1031 exchange. And always, always get out there and take massive action. So thank you again, Bill. Thank you again, Mike. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Azria Show with your hosts, Marcus Maloney and Mike Delpreet. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you found this information valuable, head over to azria.org and learn more about our community.